Well, if you've been an American Christian for any length of time or grew up reading British children's stories, you know the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In the story, the Bevensee children stumble their way through a wardrobe into a magical land called Narnia. Narnia. Uh, the land is under the thumb of the White Witch, but is actually ruled by a powerful lion named Aslan. As the story goes, one of the Pevensey children, uh, Edmund, is an especially naughty little British boy. He betrays his siblings and he falls under the curse of the White Witch. Now Aslan has mercy on Edmund, though, and offers to forgive him for his moral lapse. However, in order for Edmund to escape, the lion needs to surrender his own life. He needs to sacrifice his own hide for Edmund's sake. Now, the White Witch thinks she has won an epic struggle against her eternal foe, but the lion is brought back to life and and leads the children to victory over the witch's evil army. Now, even if you've never read or watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it might sound familiar to you, and it might sound familiar to you because C.S. Lewis actually wrote it as a Christian allegory. Uh, An allegory is a story in which different characters' events represent, like, ones in the real world. So, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the White Witch represents... The devil, Satan. Uh, Aslan represents Jesus. Jesus. You knew that, right, people? Uh, The Pevensey children represent humanity. And Edmund, for his part, represents us. Sinners in need of forgiveness. For generations, people have been using the story of Narnia to explain the Christian gospel to children and, 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 and adults alike. We are all Edmund, you see. We are all naughty little British boys, sinners who have violated our calling, enslaved ourselves to the white witch, to the devil. We cannot escape the devil's grip except by the sacrifice of Jesus, our Aslan. Jesus sacrificed his own life so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be rescued. And to the devil's surprise, Jesus did not stay dead, but he rose up again to leave his people to victory. That's the Christian gospel. And the story of Narnia does seem to reflect what the Bible says Jesus came to do here on earth. In the book of Mark, for example, Jesus says this. He says, for the Son of Man, that's him, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not just for Edmund, (laughs) for many, for you, for me, for Edmund, for anybody. This is the good news of Christianity. This is the gospel. But does the message of the gospel really make sense? I mean, to some people, honestly, it makes no sense at all. What? We are enslaved to the devil? What? And what? Our sins are so bad that we got to, like, go to hell forever if we don't repent? And, and what? The Son of God, like, had to sacrifice his life for our sakes? What? To many skeptics, that's not just a really weird message. That's nonsensical. What to Christians is a message of hope and redemption is, to skeptics, it's just a silly fairy tale. Which means we should probably talk about it. <laughs> We're in a series right now uh, called Six Reasons I Might Lose My Faith and Six Reasons I Won't. Uh, During the series, we're talking about different reasons that people have for not following Jesus. The atheists, the skeptics, the non-believers in our lives, they're not dumb. They have reasons for not following Jesus. Some of those reasons are even, you know, somewhat good. Christians have responses to those reasons, though. We've been talking about those. But this series in general is, is part of our effort here at Rooftop to be a place where, where doubts and questions are, are welcomed and dealt with fairly and respectfully. So far during this series, we've talked about different objections that people have for not following Jesus, you know, like science and uh, the problem over the religions. And last week, Jeremy talked about 
uh, the, the unanswered prayer. N- next week, Skyler's going to actually talk about the problem of suffering. But this morning, I want to talk about this objection. Does the gospel make any sense at all? To a lot of people, it does. I mean, the gospel message of Christianity, like I said, it's the simple message that for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. That's John 3.16. You see it on billboards. You see it at football stadiums. That's the gospel that changed our lives. That's the gospel I heard at the Billy Graham crusade that I went to years ago. That's the gospel that you might have heard when you were at youth group and at the campfire that led you to give your life to Jesus. That's the gospel you might have heard here at Rooftop, which led you to get baptized. That's the gospel. God loves you enough to come and die for your sins so that you get to go to heaven, not hell. That's the gospel. But skeptics and atheists would actually call illogical every part of the gospel that I've just described it. To them, it makes no sense at all. And their objections are many. So God created us to live perfect lives and judges us for not living up to his perfect expectations. Perfection's a pretty high bar. Is that a fair test? And our sins are so bad that we deserve to go to hell forever for them? Hell forever? I mean, I I know I am a naughty British boy, but (laughs) hell forever? And and we're such terrible sinners that that Jesus had to die a horrible death for our crimes? How does that fix the problem? Uh, Was that the only way? I mean, does God practice child sacrifice? Are we okay with this? So the gospel might be beautiful to some, but it makes little sense to others. So we should ask, does the gospel make any sense at all? Now, I could just say, yes, it does. Shut up, you atheists. Stop harping on my gospel. Get your own church. Or we could think through this, see if there's something to it, in a spirit of generosity and open-mindedness. Let's do that. So within skeptics' criticism of the gospel message are at least three questions. Here are the three questions. First, how can God hold us accountable for a condition we were born into? Second, is it really fair for God to send sinners to hell forever for earthly crimes? Third, why was it necessary for Jesus to die? Was that the only way? How does that solve the problem? These are actually tough questions that honestly, a lot of Christians never think about. But they're good questions, and they're hard. We might have to stretch our brains to answer them. And even if you've never wondered these questions, they're still worth discussing, because at the end of our time together, you might see a certain logic to being a follower of Jesus that you didn't see before. Let's just dive in, though, and start with the first question. How can God hold us accountable for a condition we were born into? How can God hold us accountable for a condition we were born into and didn't have much choice about? You see, Christianity teaches that we're all sinners. You've heard that before. To be a sinner means many things, but it means to fall short of God's perfect moral standards. It means to break God's laws of how we're created to live our lives. God created us to live our lives in a certain way in which we can enjoy all the benefits that come with living life in a certain way, but we don't because we're sinners. Now, we're sinners for lots of reasons. We're sinners because we're born into sin. As David says in Psalm 51, surely I was sinful at birth. I mean, this happened before I even became conscious. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Also, we're sinners because of who we're descended from. We're descended from Adam and Eve who sinned in the garden. We're their ancestors or their descendants. 
And also we're sinners because we just can't stop. Can't stop from doing wrong, as Paul writes in the book of Romans. In my sinful nature, I am a slave to the law of sin. We are sin addicts. We just can't stop sinning. However it is that we are sinners, we have thus failed to live up to God's perfect moral standards for humanity, and we have disqualified ourselves from any place in the new heavens and the new earth. But here's the question, was this ever a fair test? Did we even have a chance to live up to God's expectations? I mean, we had a lot stacked against us. We were born into sin, we were descended from sinful parents, we are addicted to sin. How can God expect us to live perfect, holy lives? We're like children born on drugs. You know how much of a hard time some of those kids have? As kids born addicted to sin, how much of a shot at obeying God do we really have? I mean, I actually think about this all the time. I meet with a lot of people with a lot of problems, like really deep problems. These are people who were like raised in, in, the, in, in the wake of centuries of family dysfunction. They're born with like brain defects and mental illness. They were raised by parents who barely cared for them. What sort of shot do they really have at meeting God's standards? That seems kind of unrealistic and they go to hell because of it. Uh, a long, long, long time ago, for example, Michelle and I, my wife and I, took our two boys to a 5K race on Thanksgiving Day. We'd never done anything like this before, but I was really excited about it. They were like eight and six at the time, and uh, I, I can be kind of competitive, so I really wanted to do well at this Thanksgiving turkey day trot, and I wanted my boys to do well, so we, we started racing, and I was like, you know, challenging the boys to, to keep up with me, you know, a, an adult runner. Um, and I was getting a little frustrated. They were dragging behind. Um, my oldest, Mitchell, was having a hard time breathing. And I could, that's all right. You know, this is just how you stretch your lungs. You've got you to push yourself through. And he was get, kind of dragging behind and getting frustrated. And I was getting frustrated. It wasn't a fun race. Halfway through the race, it occurred to me, though, I remembered, oh, wait. Oh, wait. Yeah, that's right. My son has asthma. <laughs> how did I forget that my son has asthma? <laughs> I was expecting an eight-year-old kid with asthma who's never run a race before to keep up with me at the time, a seasoned runner. I was being ridiculous. But isn't that like God holding us accountable to his perfect moral standards? Aren't we all just eight-year-old kids with asthma trying to keep up with seasoned runners? This doesn't make any sense. God's expectations seem ridiculously unfair. This is a fair point. What would be a Christian response? Well, yes, we are all terrible sinners who fall far below the line of God's holiness. I mean, this is God's perfect moral standards. This is us. We are down here. We, we are selfish and we are greedy and we are lustful and we are just frankly morally ridiculous people. As a species, we do not measure up. And, and yes, God judges us for not reaching his perfect moral standards but on a more practical everyday level, God doesn't judge us on a more practical everyday level. God judges us for not meeting these standards, but on a more practical everyday level, God doesn't judge us for not meeting these standards. God judges us for not meeting these standards. You see, God is fair. He's a good judge. Uh, as a good judge, God has very individualized standards. The Bible actually tells the story of God accommodating his expectations for sinful humanity. He's not going to expect us to win a 5K as an eight-year-old with asthma, but he will judge us for not like showing up on time to run the race. He will judge us for not beating our time if he knows we could. You see, we all have opportunities every day 
to pursue righteousness and avoid evil. We have the opportunity to say no to sexual temptation. We have the opportunity to say no to treating your body badly with laziness or or food. We have the opportunity to say yes to serving a neighbor instead of our own needs. And even though we are sinners, even though we are sinners, I actually might disagree with Martin Luther here, but that's an entirely different theological question. Even though we are sinners, we are not so far gone that we are incapable of choosing the good in those moments. Just because we are deeply and despairingly corrupt doesn't mean we can't do good if given the chance. When we do, we are rewarded. When we don't, we suffer. It's like Cain and Abel. Maybe you know the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain and Abel brought two offerings to God. For undisclosed reasons, God preferred Abel's over Cain's. This made Cain jealous. God knew this, so God came down graciously to talk him through what he was feeling. What did God tell Cain? He said, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Cain had the opportunity to do what was right. He had the opportunity to resist temptation. All he had to do was not kill his brother. That's all he had to do. Like his parents before him, he chose not to resist sin, though, and he killed Abel. He didn't have to, but he did. We all have that choice. You will have that choice today. You will have the choice to do what is right. Yes, you are a sinner. You cannot win a 5K. You are a sinner with asthma. You're a little boy with asthma. But that doesn't mean you can't do your best. That doesn't mean you can't beat your time. God is very idealistic in his perfect standards, but he's also realistic in what he expects from us. He doesn't expect perfection from you today. He just expects you to do what is right. It's like that, that song, what is Anna sing from Frozen 2? Do the next right thing. That's right, yeah, that abomination of a movie, Frozen 2. <laughs> what is she saying? Do the next right thing. In a very real way, that's what God expects. Just do the next right thing. Unfortunately, even in that sense, we are failures. Even in God's simplest expectations, we fail as often as we succeed, which brings us to the next question of the gospel. If the first question is, how can God hold us accountable for a condition that we were born into? The second question is this. Is it really fair for God to send sinners to hell forever for earthly crimes? Is it really fair for God to send sinners to hell forever, forever, for temporary earthly crimes. Uh, Jesus tells a story in the Gospel of Matthew about two groups of people and how they serve the poor. There's a group of people that doesn't serve the poor very well at all. He calls this group of people goats. And then he, there's this other group of people uh, who serve the poor really well. He calls them sheep. right? And of the goats, he says this, then they, the goats, will go away to eternal punishment with the righteous to eternal life. Now, by eternal punishment, he means hell. hell, right? The place where sinners are judged, punished, separated from God forever. Jesus, uh, to, to our discomfort, talks about hell a lot. He talks about it as a very real place we could all go. Like in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, his most famous sermon, Jesus says, anybody who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anybody who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus believed in hell. Hell is a place 
according to Christian teaching, where sinners go forever who do not obey God or find forgiveness in Christ. But here's the question. I mean, doesn't it seem a little bit unfair to send people to hell forever for relatively minor earthly crimes? I mean, Jesus says, I might go to hell if I call my brother a fool. I mean, not not only does that seem extreme, but what if they're actually being foolish? (laughs) Hell seems to violate, here's the problem. Hell seems to violate one of the principles uh, of jurisprudence. That what? The punishment should fit the crime. You've heard that, right? I mean, if your child steals a cookie from the cookie jar, you put them in timeout. You don't banish them to the streets forever naked. I mean, I know we like when our judges show that they're tough on crime, but hell seems like a miscarriage of justice. Author Lee Strobel calls hell a, a, a cosmic sense of overkill. Maybe some people deserve hell, people like mass murderers and, and, and rapists, but even then, I mean, do, do even the worst of humanity's sinners deserve to spend eternity suffering, being tortured forever in hell? And, and besides which, you know, aside from the, the worst of humanity, what about the rest of us, you know, somewhat decent people? Do, do we deserve that forever? I was actually thinking about this the other day. <clears throat> My daughter was in a play, and uh, when the play finished, some of the parents had to volunteer to go strike the set to tear it down. Uh, so this past Monday, a, a whole bunch of us showed up at the, the theater in Kirkwood to go tear the set down. A lot of us had to take work off to be there. But we were all there. We were having a good time. We were smiling. We were introducing ourselves. We were just serving. We were enjoying being together. Um, and I was thinking about my sermon for the morning while working with these, you know, hard-working parent volunteers, all these good people, and I was thinking, you know, the, all these good people, all these good citizens of Kirkwood, you know, they're really friendly, hap- helpful, sacrificial, they're good Kirkwood citizens. Uh, are these citizens of Kirkwood really going to hell forever? Don't answer that, ye citizens of Webster Groves. <laughs> <laughs> this is the question. Isn't hell unfair? What would be a Christian response? Well, let me give you a couple. First, the severity of our crimes against God cannot be measured by human standards of justice. The severity of our crimes against God cannot be measured by human standards of justice. Divine justice doesn't work the way human justice does. When we sin, we're not breaking human laws. We're breaking divine laws. Breaking divine laws subjects us to divine consequences. Think about it this way. What's the greatest sin Anybody could ever commit. What's the greatest sin anybody could ever commit? Somebody says murder, you know, or murdering lots of people, or harming animals, or harming children. Those are terrible. But they're actually not the greatest sin that anybody could ever commit. What's the greatest sin anybody could ever commit? Denying your creator. Denying your creator. Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland puts it like this. The most heinous thing a person can do in this life is to mock and dishonor and refuse to love the person that we owe absolutely everything to, which is our creator, God himself. That's the ultimate sin, to refuse to love or honor the one who gives us everything. When we sin against the creator's will for our lives, that's what we're telling him. Even in the smallest act of disobedience against God's will, we're telling the one who formed us, Thanks for, like, existence, but I don't want you, I don't need you. When we cheat on our taxes, we're telling the one who promised to take care of us, no, I don't 
believe you. When we cut someone off in traffic, we're telling them, you know, I don't care about that person that you created. When we don't take care of our body, we're telling God, I don't care what you say about my body, God-given body being a temple of you. We're telling God, we don't want him, we don't need him. These are not small crimes. They are eternal crimes against the holy God. Eternal crimes against the holy God deserve eternal consequences. Hell is entirely justified. Here's the other thing, though. And I want to tell you this before we get to question three, and this is pretty important. As much as as we deserve to go to hell for our crimes, hell is not so much a place God sends people. It's the place people choose to go who do not want to live the lives they were created to live. As much as God sends people to hell, it's as much a choice we make to go there. What? What do you say? What do you say? Why would anybody choose to go to hell? Why wouldn't everybody just choose to go to heaven? Well, think about it. God is holy and perfect and pure. His eminence burns in heaven. When we're reading the Bible, like scenes of heaven, the angels, what they have to do? They have to cover their body and their eyes so they don't get burned. When, when God shows up on earth, he tells people, turn away, lest ye die. So as much as we think everybody would want to go to heaven, we shouldn't assume that's true. In heaven, people will have to want to be there in their most holy form. And I know a lot of people in my life who have no interest in that. They can only imagine doing what they want to do. So what does God do? God gives them hell. Hell isn't so much a place of fire and darkness. Those those are symbols. Jesus used these symbols to describe hell. Hell, here's what hell is. Hell is separation from God, eternal separation from God. It's being permanently removed from God's presence. And honestly, let's be honest, that's what a lot of us want. We want to be free of God's burdensome expectations. We want to be free to live our own lives as selfishly and indulgently as we want. So respectfully, what can God do? God gives us hell. I know it's hard to fathom. I know it's hard to fathom that anybody would choose hell, but I think you know what I'm describing. I mean, if you have kids, you know what this is, this is like. Your kid does something stupid, selfish, and you're mad, and they feel shamed about it. You want to forgive them. You want to talk them through it. But what do they want to do? They want to go to their bedroom and be left alone. They want to go live their life on their own without having to worry about you. They want to be free of your love and grace and high expectations. That's what a lot of people want from God, too. So God gives it to them. God gives them hell. God removes himself from their lives at their request so that they can live free of his grace and love and truth. Hell isn't so much a place where God sends people. Hell is a place where sinners ask to go. And reluctantly, but necessarily, God lets them go there. God almost created the place to have some place for them to go. So is it really fair for God to send people to hell for earthly crimes? It's very fair. Some of us might even prefer it. God doesn't, though. He really doesn't. Which is why he made a way for us to escape it, if we so choose. Which brings us to our third question. Why was it necessary for Jesus to die? Was this the only way? Why was it necessary for Jesus to die? Was that the only way? You see, the Bible says that instead of giving sinners over to hell and sin and death, God the Father made a way for our guilt to be removed. Because we have broken God's laws time and time again, not just like these laws, remember, but these laws, because we have broken God's laws time and time again, we are burdened with guilt. We are, we are not qualified for heaven. 
and we deserve only to be separated by God, from God forever. This is the only thing to be done with sinners like us. We deserve to be removed from God's presence forever. We deserve death, eternal death, that separation from God. God doesn't want that, though. God really doesn't want that for his kids. What parent would? So what did he do? Well, you might know this. Came to earth as a man, or if we lived in Narnia, as a lion, gave his own life. God counted Jesus' sacrifice as the penalty we owe, and by accepting that sacrifice, we can be forgiven. The Bible calls this an atoning sacrifice. As John writes, he, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is what you heard at summer camp. God is the atoning sacrifice for your sins. But wait, what? Does this make sense? I mean, for starters, if the consequence of like sin in our lives is to be separated by God, from God, forever in hell, how did Jesus pay that bill? Jesus died and was gone for like three days. That's not forever. Know what I'm saying? So if Jesus had to pay the bill that we owe, we should be like separated from God forever in hell. Jesus was gone like three days. Was it just like really hard time? In fact, we don't even know that where, where Jesus went. We assume he might have gone to hell, but we just, we don't know where he went. But he was gone. He died. Maybe he went to hell. It was like three hard days. Man, I spent three days in the clink. Man, that was brutal. It's enough though, right God? It's enough to you know, atone for the sins of humanity? So that, that doesn't, there, there doesn't seem to be an equivalence there. But also, here's the other question. Was this the only way? Because it's a weird way. It's a brutal way. I mean, why did Jesus have to die brutally on a cross? Was this the requirement that God had? And could he have not adjusted it? Could he have not been more flexible? Have you heard about those judges who come up with like really creative punishments for criminals? to maybe save them the brutality of their punishment or help them understand a little bit better what they sin. This is a judge in Kentucky who uh, comes up with creative punishments. Uh, this guy was caught soliciting a prostitute. He had to stand on a corner wearing a chicken costume for a week. Uh, she uh, stiffed a cab driver, so he made her walk 50 miles. There's some other punishments down there. Judges can be flexible. Could God not be flexible? I mean, he's God! Could he not come up with something else? Could he have not said, okay, for your sins, everybody take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem? Or everybody sing like 10 days of like your least favorite worship song? You know, something? Why did a son have to die? Was that the only way? I mean, was there any other way? Apparently, no. How do we know? Well, dads, you tell me. If there was a way for your son to not have to die, you would find it, right? If there was a way, you would find it. There wasn't. Jesus still had to die according to the Father's will. Why? It must have been necessary. Why? It was necessary because the God who exists the God who we worship, the God who the Bible reveals to us, that God is forgiving and gracious and compassionate and just. The God of the Bible is compassionate and forgiving and gracious and just. And to be a just God means to punish sin. This is what judges do. A justice who is not just would not be a justice. 
And the nature of our crimes against God is so severe that someone had to die. Why did someone have to die? Why did someone have to die? Because sin causes death. When we sin, people die. When we sin, marriages die. When we sin, relationships die. When we sin against our bodies, we bring disease and death into our bodies. When when we sin against each other, we bring death into the world. When we start conflicts, they turn into wars in which people die. Someone had to die because our sin causes death. Now, technically, who should have died? Like, eternally. Who should have died? Us. That should be us. We're the sinners who cause death. But this is what is beautiful and logical and sensible about the cross of Jesus Christ. God is just, but also loving and gracious, so he made a way. He came to earth as a man who died on a cross, and he did this to demonstrate his love, to both demonstrate his love and also satisfy his own divine justice. He shows us his love in making a way for us to be forgiven, but he also shows us his wrath, his justice, by demonstrating to us what was required for us to be forgiven. God doesn't want to just snap his fingers and forgive us. We wouldn't get it. This is why God required the Israelites for centuries to sacrifice animals. I mean, that's a grotesque thing to do, sacrifice animals. Why? Well, because as the blood of their favorite lambs was like draining out on the altar, they had to realize, and God made this clear, this is happening because you sinned. You need to know this. But you also need to know that I love you enough to make a way. God is too committed to his sense of justice to leave sin unpunished, but too in love with us to not give us a chance to be forgiven. Now, that might not answer all your questions about the sacrifice of Jesus. I mean, back to our earlier question, if we deserve death in hell and Jesus paid for our sins perfectly, why did Jesus not have to spend eternity in hell forever? It's a good question. There's not an equivalence there. All I can say on that point is death could not contain the man. And God in his flexibility accepted what Jesus did as sufficient to pay for our crimes. We really don't know. We really don't know how exactly divine justice played out. All we know is that it needed to and that it did. So three questions. There are some answers. Think about them. In the end, does the gospel make sense? Not to everybody. To some people, it's absolute nonsense. Maybe to you. But for the record, this has always been the case. The gospel's never made sense to a lot of people. In fact, when the Apostle Paul was like traveling around the Roman Empire preaching the gospel, uh, he discovered that to a lot of people, it perplexed them. They didn't get it. They were offended by it. As he writes in Corinthians, he says this, We preach Christ crucified. Here's what he found. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. But... To those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God stronger than human strength. So the world may never understand the wisdom and the power of God. This idea that God holds accountable for sins, it's foolishness to them. This notion that we deserve hell because of our sins, it's ridiculous to them. This this. Uh, suggestion that Jesus could atone for our sins, it makes no sense to them. It's ridiculous. This is foolishness, the world might say. And in a sense, it is foolishness. Paul is acknowledging that it's foolishness. But here's the thing. It's God's foolishness. And God's foolishness is wiser than the world's wisdom. For it is by the foolishness of the gospel that we can be saved from the power of the white witch. 
It's by the foolishness of the gospel that we, Edmund, can escape the eternal flames of hell. And it is the foolishness of the gospel that we can be forgiven by a just God who is determined to punish sin, but also determined to rescue those who want to reign with him. The Lion of Judah sitting on the throne of heaven. That's the gospel we believe in. That's the gospel we preach here at Rooftop. That's the gospel we cling to. It might make no sense to you, but it makes sense to us. In fact, it is the only thing that makes sense. In a world filled with the foolishness and the ridiculousness of sin and death and despair. You ever look at the world like that? Like, this makes no sense. Why does the world exist like this? It makes no sense. It, it doesn't make any sense. The only thing that makes sense is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The idea that God loves you so much that he did not let you suffer for your sins eternally, but that he came to earth, gave his life as a sacrifice on the cross, so that we might have a choice to go to heaven, not hell. It's not a choice everybody wants to make. Make yours.